0: I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Blanche Capel. Dr. Capel is a cell and developmental biologist at Duke University, where her lab studies the mechanisms of sex determination across different animal species. We discussed the nature of sexual reproduction and sexual dimorphism, including when these things first evolved, the evolutionary reasons for sexual reproduction compared to asexual reproduction, and the amazing diversity of mechanisms that determine the development of sexual traits across the animal kingdom. Different kinds of animals do sexual development in very different ways. We talked about the contribution of genetic versus environmental factors in sex determination and how these vary across different species. We discussed sex hormones, such as the... The familiar hormones testosterone and estrogen. We discussed sex chromosomes, like the X and Y chromosomes that humans and other mammals have. We also talked about things like gametes and gonads and how they develop. These are the sex cells, like sperm and egg, and the reproductive organs that produce them and the major sex hormones that shape sexual development. Towards the end, we also talked about what we know and don't know about the biology of puberty and sexual development after birth, as well as whether environmental factors, such as components of the diet or environmental contaminants, could be influenced influencing sexual development. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. You can subscribe to my free weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com. I send out a newsletter every week that contains updates about the podcast, including upcoming guests, other information that I'm putting out there in the form of writing that goes on Substack or that I'm doing elsewhere, and interesting things I'm seeing in the research world that I've been reading recently, as well as other interesting information that I come across. A great way to share the podcast is simply to tell your friends and family about your favorite episode and what it was about, or to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or all those types of places. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Blanche Capel. Dr. Blanche Capel, thank you for joining me.
1: Uh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Can you start off by just telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what kind of scientific research you do?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, well, I'm um, I'm Blanche Capel. I'm a professor in the Department of Cell Biology at Duke University Medical Center. Um, I did my... Uh, my graduate training at the university. First of all, I did my undergraduate training at Hollins, uh, which used to be Hollins College, is now Hollins University in Virginia. It's an all women's college. Mm. Uh, it was uh, at the time well known for, um, it's because we had produced a lot of really great writers. And uh, I thought I wanted to write the great Southern novels. So hmm. I was not in, initially involved really in science. My degree there was in art history and, uh, and literature. And, and then later, uh, after, my ch- I, after my children were born and started grade school, I went back to uh, pick up some courses in science. I was always been really interested in genetics, but I'd never really um, thought I wanted to dig into it until quite a bit later. And then I decided it would be fun to just learn a bit more about genetics. Um, and so I went back to pick up some courses at Bryn Mawr College and Haverford College. I was at that time living outside Philadelphia. Um, and I got really, really excited about science and eventually decided to go back to graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania, where I did my PhD. I was part of the genetics program, uh, but I was loaned for uh, uh, to Beatrice Mintz as my graduate advisor. She is a real was a real giant in um, in engineering mouse techniques. Um, she was involved in creating some of the first chimeric mice and uh, some of the first transgenics. Uh, she just did a tremendous amount of, um, uh, of work to, to make the mouse the model organism that is today. And she was a real innovative thinker. Um, very, one of the brightest people I have ever met even to, to today um, and very interesting to work with, uh, temperamental and difficult and very demanding, um, but um, I was a, it was a great um, treasure for me to have had the opportunity to, to work with her for my PhD. At the time I was working on hematopoietic stem cells. Uh, this was a time before uh, we were, were just beginning to think that there was probably a hemato- hematopoietic stem cell that could give rise to all the other lineages. And I was doing transplantation studies um, to see if if we marked individual cells with a retroviral insert, whether we could see that same retroviral insert turn up in all the hematopoietic lineages in the adult. And I was transplanting fetal liver cells and bone marrow cells between mice at the time, taking advantage of mutations in the mouse that deplete the hematopoietic compartment, uh, which allowed engraftment of... of, of, um, blood cells. Anyway, uh, I, she B B had a real strong interest in sex determination and germ cell biology, even though we didn't work on it in her lab, she had come from a lab where she did a lot of work, uh, on, on germ cell biology. And she was always fascinated by germ cells. And somehow I think she transferred that interest to me, even though I didn't work on that in her lab. Uh, and when I was looking for a postdoc, um, I found the Lovell Badge lab in London, was really interesting to me. So Robin Lovell Badge had just set his own lab up maybe four years before. uh, And he was working on sex determination in mice. And he had a strong history in mouse genetics and I admired that. And I thought uh, I had been working with a very strong and well, she had her finger in every pie, you know, and so I thought it might be nice to work with somebody who was just starting out and where I would be in a more equal footing um, and have a better chance to drive my own uh, fate. And so I applied to Robin for um, a postdoc position, and he took me. By this time, I was pretty old. Uh, you know, I was, I don't know, 39 or 40, something like that. So it seemed like, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't know how easy it would be to get a postdoc position, but um, he took me and I went to London and just fell in love with sex determination and and germ cell biology. Um, It was a really exciting time in his lab. Um, We had, he had been working on on trying to identify the sex determining gene for many years by various uh, methods. One of which was to use retroviruses to indiscriminately target embryonic stem cells and then produce mice to see if, if he had managed to hit the sex determining gene and cause sex reversal. Uh, and he and Elizabeth Robertson had done this project earlier. And in fact, they got a mouse that was sex reversed. But when they looked for the insertion site of the retrovirus, which was meant to mark the sex determining gene, it turned out that the retrovirus had jumped around and, and, uh, and was no longer where it originally uh, caused the damage on the Y chromosome. So they were not allowed, they were not able to identify the sex determining gene from that experiment. Um, and it, it was about the same time that David Page, who was working at MIT, identified a gene on the Y chromosome that he thought was the sex determining gene. It, uh, he called it, um, well, we, we knew it as ZFY, because I was in England, so we were saying Z instead of Z. but. Um, And and that was a real disappointment, both to Robin's lab and also Peter Goodfellow's lab, who is also working in London, but working mainly on human tissue. And Peter Goodfellow had been walking down the human Y chromosome using probes from the junction with the region that pairs with the X chromosome. So he had probes at the time we weren't sequencing, you know, so you had to do everything using Uh, tiling probes walking down the chromosome to see uh, where the chromosome was disrupted was his plan and when page published zfy as a sex determining gene everybody was very crestfallen in england Uh, but then we had some data in in the mouse in robin's lab that showed that um, the gene that page had discovered was actually expressed in germ cells and not in the somatic cells in the mouse. And we knew that germ cells were not required for sex determination in the mouse because you could eliminate the germ cells completely and still get male sex determination. So it could not be that the gene controlling sex determination was only expressed in the germ cells. Um, So that made us think, this is not the right gene. Something's wrong here. So we began, you know, looking with Peter Goodfellow's probes, um, sort of walking down the Y chromosome to see if we could identify another candidate gene, and we came across the SRY gene. Um, and it was a very, it was very interesting because then when we used the mouse that uh, Robin Lovell-Badge and Elizabeth Robertson had, event- had originally. Uh, use the retroviral insertion to, to try to uh, find the, the right gene. We discovered in that strain, the, there was a gene on the Y chromosome that was completely deleted. Uh, and those mice were sex reversed to female. And that region that was deleted uh, covered this gene SRY. So we were pretty sure that we had hmm. the correct gene. Um, we also had a group of candidate Uh, humans from Algeria that had deletions of the Y chromosome um, at varying um, from, so there's a boundary with the X, the region that pairs with the X, which is called the PAR. And from the PAR downward, uh, we had probes so that we could walk down the chromosome and see what was there and what was not. And a lot of these uh, patients who were uh, XY individuals that were sex reversed to female, oh, wait, no, the other way around, sorry, there were XX patients that were sex-reversed to male. We looked to see what part of the Y chromosome those individuals carried. Um, and uh, we sorted them. So when you get humans that are sex-reversed to male, very it, it can be a hormone problem or um, that is not really the involving the fundamental switch in sex determination. Um, But if it's the gene on the Y chromosome, then the individuals that are of interest are the ones that have that boundary between the pairing region with the X and a bit of the Y chromosome, because it was known that the sex determining gene was somewhere not too far from that boundary. The the gene that David Page had identified, ZFY, was located about 200 KB down the Y chromosome from that boundary, Um, but the gene that we were Focusing on was located only about 40 KB. And the, the patients that were sex reversed because they had a piece of the Y chromosome all had breakpoints before you get to the ZFY gene, which was further evidence that ZFY was was not the right gene.
0: I see. So so you were involved in the, the identification of this very important gene that we'll talk about. And, and part of part of that identification came from sort of triangulating where it was on a particular chromosome based on these, uh, these people from Algeria that had a, a rare genetic sex reversal condition.
1: Yeah, it was, very, it was very exciting when we were able to. And I think in Peter Goodfellow's lab, they had, they had these probes because they had been working on cloning regions of the Y chromosome. So they were able to basically walk down the chromosome and say, what's missing here? Um, so it was really ex- exciting finding.
0: I think um, there's going to be a lot for us to to unpack here. And roughly speaking, before we get to the the how questions around the developmental biology of of sex, I, I thought it would be good for people to kind of paint paint sort of a uh, a context for people by asking the the why and the when questions. And um, I was thinking maybe we could start with um, what might be a deceptively simple question, but what is biological sex? And when did it first evolve? Hmm.
1: Um, I don't know when it first evolved, but it's very, very old. Um, And I think two sexes, um, you know, are of course really important for reproductive viability. I mean, hermaphrodites uh, have existed also for, uh, in in many uh, animal families for a long, long time. But There's limited genetic variability uh, through selfing, uh, that is through um, self-fertilization. And the ability to have two sexes introduces a lot more genetic variability into the population. And so I think this is really um, uh, was an important innovation. Um, And I don't know the date for when people argue that uh, two sexes first evolved.
0: but it's like hundreds of millions of years, right? Yes.
1: Yes. Very long time.
0: Okay. So it's been around a long time and you get, so the idea, and I've heard this articulated before, but the idea for why, like, why would, why would organisms even evolve sexual reproduction? Asexual reproduction has many convenient features, right? You don't need to go find a partner. Um, You know exactly what you're getting because you're going to have a clone, but basically you're saying that, you know, one of the things that that lineages get, so to speak, or why sexual reproduction might have adaptive advantages has to do with creating extra genetic diversity.
1: Yes, um, because when you are selfing, then you're just creating, uh, you know, gametes with your own genome that's gonna combine with gametes with your own genome. So there really is no chance for, for um, you know, mixing up um, the genome and, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that genetic variability is uh, more adaptive in, in particularly in changing environments that you know, so one even if some members of the population are disadvantaged in a changed environment, there will likely be members of the population that can continue the species because they will be adaptive.
0: Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially, I mean, you know when you think about humans and other animals, you know one thing that we can do very well is adapt to very different ecological contexts.
1: We can. Um, and as a population, we can do that extremely well.
0: So is it, do most or all animals have sexual reproduction? Are there any animal species that do asexual reproduction or anything like that?
1: Um, yes, there are, Um, there are many animals that do asexual reproduction. Um, I think the, um, for example, the worm C. elegans, which is a a common laboratory model. Uh, The the species that makes oocytes also can make sperm. They're hermaphrodites um, and they breed uh, as hermaphrodites or they can mate with males. So they can do either. Um, And uh, in some ways that makes them um, a, an easy genetic model, if, if you want them to just self, so that you don't have to change the genome, you don't get you know an altered genome in the offspring. Um, but uh, but they can do either, and, and they, um, I I think they're do, they typically are hermaphrodites early in their um, life, and then they are uh, they have then they mate later with males. I see. They first produce sperm, which goes into an organ called the spermatheca, and it's at the end of the uterus, this organ, and so there are a lot of sperm in this spermatheca, and as the eggs come down, the oocytes come down the uterus, um, they have to go through the spermatheca where they're fertilized, and then I think the spermatheca can be refilled with, um, by mating.
0: Interesting. So there are there are some animal yes. species that are that are capable of hermaphroditism, and yeah. additionally, they also still engage in sexual reproduction.
1: Yes, uh, and lizards. Some lizards are are hermaphrodites as well. So I mean, I think it's. I think many species use that method.
0: I see. I see. And hermaphrodite here. What, what's the actual definition? Is that just when you have individuals that can produce both sperm and egg?
1: Yes. Um, A true hermaphrodite has a testis and an ovary, um, and it can have it at the same time or at different times in their life cycle.
0: Interesting. And that's, um, I think, one of the maybe one of the things that we'll talk about a little bit here is, you know, I I was going to ask you know, did, did sexual reproduction evolve once? Like, is there one sort of way that sex is determined that evolved and we all inherited that from a single common ancestor or is, is the picture different?
1: So, uh, sex has evolved evolved many different times and the mechanisms are, com- are very, very different in different species. Hmm. Um, one interesting thing is that there are, um, we, we have sex chromosomes. So we have two homo- chromosomes that are heteromorphic. So they have different, they're obviously different. If you do a chromosomal spread, you can find the X and Y chromosomes because they're the two chromosomes that don't match any other chromosome. Um, mm. The Y is much smaller than the X, uh, but part of the Y and part of the X pair up together. So that at meiosis, Uh, those chromosomes align together and then segregate an X to one cell and a Y to the other. So we have XY chromosomes. Um, There's also a different system of of sex chromosomes referred to as Z and W. Um, And these are by convention um, ZW systems. Uh, have a female that carries the two different sex chromosomes. And then the male is called a homogametic sex, meaning that he has uh, just two Ys. I see. So that's like, that's like the
0: opposite of of mammals and
1: humans. (laughs) Yes, the opposite of humans. So in the, let's say, in the, in the XY system, males have an X and a Y. So they are the heterogametic sex, meaning uh, their gametes segregate with one of either of two types of chromosomes, an X or Y. And the females are the homogametic sex, meaning they only make one kind of gamete that only they all have an X. In chickens and in uh, other birds and um, uh, bearded dragons, for example, their system is ZW. uh, And the female is the heterogametic sex. So she's ZW uh, and the male is ZZ. Um, and just by convention, we call systems in which the male is the heterogametic sex as a XY system, and systems in which the female is the heterogametic sex as a ZW system. Hmm.
0: Just so a way track. So evolution figured out at least two different ways to use sex chromosomes to give rise to males and females. And this happened, this sort of happens in, in different ways in the bird lineage versus the mammal lineage.
1: Yes. And What's more, even in other animals that have um, an XY system, uh, so sex chromosomes come from an ordinary pair of autosomes that just uh, acquire a gene that influences sex determination. Hmm. And once that occurs, that chromosome tends to acquire more genes that favor that sex. Hmm. So for example, the gene SRY, which is on the Y chromosome in mammals, um, seems to have arisen by uh, some changes in the promoter region that allowed it to be expressed in the in the gonadal somatic cells. So in the cells of the early gonad, where it began to influence their fate and to turn them into Sertoli cells and to turn the gonad into a testis. Um, and the... The mammalian sex chromosomes evolved from one ancestral autosomal pair, but uh, the bird sex chromosomes derive from a completely different autosomal pair, as did the, um, the bearded dragon. So they all come from different autosomes initially, and the gene that causes sex determination is different in different species.
0: I see. So it's sort of like... Um... I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but what you're saying is at some point in evolution, one of, one of the chromosomes in, in an animal will acquire some ability to do something to do with sex determination. Yes. And once that happens, the sex determining genes tend to concentrate in that chromosome and move literally to that chromosome such that you end up getting what we now see as sex chromosomes.
1: That chromosome. And they can evolve and they can also disappear. Hmm. Um, they can erode, um, but you can imagine that if one, if for example, um, a sex determining gene lands on a chromosome and, and, and that chromosome makes embryos that inherit it male, then it, the system will be propagated by the acquisition of genes all around that gene on that Y chrom- on that chromosome that produce more sperm or produce stronger sperm. Mm. So that means that that chromosome will be transmitted more often because more individuals uh, will be fathered by the individual that uh, acquired that change. So sex-determining genes tend to gather together when they promote uh, the, the, um, one sex or the other.
0: Interesting. Okay, so, so the sex-determining genes tend to cluster on the same chromosome if one gene helps turn you into a, a male anatomical plan versus a female plan, you'll also tend to get other genes such as those involved. I mean, presumably like sperm proteins and things that yeah. affect sperm motility yeah. and all that stuff. Yes. Interesting. That's right. And, and, and that, can,
1: that can happen in theory on any original pair of autosomes.
0: I see. And so that would, yeah, that would explain why, um, in mammals and humans, you get XY for male. The heterogametic sex is male, but it's flipped in birds and other animals. Yeah. And so that that brings us to an interesting question, I think. So you've got sex chromosomes playing an important role in the bird and mammal lineages. But you know, what determines what determines whether or not you're a male is not whether or not you're the heterogametic sex per se, because in one case in mammals it is, and the other case in birds it isn't. So what determines male or femaleness if it's not the sex chromosomes that you have?
1: Uh, Well, it can be determined by um, many things. It can be determined by environmental factors. If um, some species that don't have sex chromosomes or have no sex chromosomes that we've identified, Their sex is controlled by uh, environmental factors that could mean population. In some fish, it's population density. Mm. It can be pH in the water. It can be uh, uh, other environmental cues like temperature is a common determinant of sex. And interestingly, these things can be superimposed. So in in the bearded dragon, there are sex chromosomes. There are... uh, there are ZW sex chromosomes, but that species is sensitive to temperature. So at very high temperatures, uh, dragons that would be males, ZZ dragons that would normally develop as a male, uh, if they are developing at a very high temperature, they'll turn into females. Hmm. The temperature can override the signal on the sex chromosome in this case. And this has been shown for a couple of species um, that even though they have sex chromosomes, environmental factors. Um, In chicken, for example, they have sex chromosomes, they have ZW sex chromosomes. But uh, if you put estrogen on a chicken egg, uh, regardless of its sex chromosome constitution, it will turn into a female.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So there
1: seem to be several intersecting pathways.
0: Yeah. With the system. One um, so one thing maybe we should do up front here is um, we've already used some terms that maybe people aren't familiar with. Can you explain the difference for people between gametes, gonads, and uh, genitalia—the three G's here?
1: Yeah. So uh, okay, gametes are the um, cells that are produced um, that give rise to sperm and eggs. And they are a special cell lineage that is usually formed uh, early in the embryo. And then those cells migrate to their position in the embryo, which is in the gonad. And there they develop into sperm or eggs. The gonad is an, an organ that arises early in embryogenesis. And it's the only bipotential organ, that is to say, Uh, it it is an organ that arises and can develop into two completely different organs. It can become Mm. a testis or an ovary, the same cells and the same initial little structure. Um, So this is unlike other organs like kidneys. When a kidney forms, the cells that make up the kidney can only become a kidney. They don't Mm. have the chance to decide, oh, I'm going to be another organ. And it's true for the heart. But for the gonad, the gonad arises as this unique bipotential structure which is what makes it so interesting to study from the point of view of organogenesis. So trying to understand how our early organs form. The gonad is very unique because it can follow one of these two pathways. And um, the pathway it follows typically controls the sexual phenotype of the organism. So it's the first, um, at least one of the first, dimorphic, meaning different between the sexes, um, structure. And once it forms, it begins to produce hormones typical of what it has become. If it becomes an ovary, it'll make estrogen. If it becomes a testis, it'll make testosterone. And then the, the, the rest of the body responds to the hormone that is produced by the gonad. So the rest of the, the, the animal will be feminized or masculinized by the hormones produced by the gonad, once the gonad makes the choice.
0: I see. So, and, so the gametes are basically the sex cells, the certain type of cell, like a sperm or an egg.
1: They're, they're a cell that's produced that that gives rise to eggs and sperm. And the they migrate, the, they're called germ cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that form the gametes eventually. But when they're just germ cells, they are also bipotential and they'll migrate to the gonad. And the gonad has little uh, niches, little compartments to put them in. And then the gonad takes care of those cells. It surrounds the cells in the gonad, surround those special germ cells, and uh, allow them to develop into
0: eggs or sperm. I see. So the the gonad is the special organ that you said it it has bipotential. So it can turn into either one thing or another thing. It can turn into either ovary or testis. And it's unique It's unique compared to other organs, like the heart or the intestines or whatever, in that way. And I guess what determines which one it turns into is just some combination of sex chromosomes and genetic factors together with environmental factors. And and, and the combination probably varies from species to species.
1: That's right. But that initial uh, decision within the gonad is referred to within the field as primary sex determination.
0: I see. And it's it's primary because it happens... It happens early, and then basically you said that that then, that then changes the internal environment based on the hormones that get released from, yes. from that organ.
1: Yeah, and the genitalia um, begins as a, um, a, a, a structure that's also bipotential. potential. It's not really uh, in the same way, but it, the, what happens is that it can either turn into female genitalia or male genitalia. But that typically depends on the hormones from the gonad. I see. There are a couple of known cases where it depends on the sex chromosomes and not the hormones. That's true in uh, kangaroos and tamar wallabies, So some marsupials. The genitalia development is dependent on the sex chromosome constitution and not sex hormones. It, it may be that as things go forward, we will find more cases of structures or changes in development that are, are not dependent on the gonads, mm-hmm. but are dependent on sex chromosomes. Right now, we don't have a lot of examples of that, but I think there are some coming along.
0: Interesting. Um, what about in humans? So what's the primary factor driving um, whether you develop ovaries or testes in humans. Is that mostly a sex chromosome thing?
1: Yes, that's the SRY gene on the Y chromosome, same as in mouse. And mice and humans are relatively, in fact, all of placental mammals are relatively insensitive to environmental factors, as far as we know. I mean, they are because development occurs in the uterus, they are protected from temperature changes, Mm. um, you know, pH differences, um, unaffected by population density. You know, they're they're really protected from other factors that really influence the fate of other organisms. For example, that live in, that are aquatic, where, Mm. you know, there may be a, a high level of estrogens in the water.
0: I see. So, so there's this natural buffering there just because of the internal fertilization that placental mammals have. Has anyone done experiments where, you know, in mice, where you just alter the uh, in utero environment in some dramatic way?
1: Well, the uterine environment is hard to modify. Um, I mean, you can't change the temperature. Um, And the placenta basically mediates um, a lot of the hormone balance to Mm -hmm. the embryo. (laughs) <laughs> Excuse me, but I think that um, we have tried, and others have tried, to take out to take gonads out of embryos and culture them in a dish with extra hormones to see whether we can influence their fate. And a colleague of mine, Andy Pask, has found some evidence for this, um, but we found it very difficult to get any any convincing data from this. And it could be that we just uh, that the the uh, mammalian the placental mammalian system is strongly buffered against, against this. In marsupials, the marsupials, as you may know, uh, only spend half of their gestation period in the uterus. They're born at mid-gestation and then they go into the pouch. When they're born, their front end of the animal is very well developed. They have good claws and they can, when they're born, they climb up the fur into the pouch, dragging the, the back end of them, which is barely developed at all. I mean, their hind limbs are just tiny. Um, at the time they're they're born Uh, and then they develop for a sort of an equal period in the pouch before they're actually able to be independent Um, and if you introduce um, estrogens at the time they're born if when they're born a little early so you, you have to catch them at just the right time but you can influence the fate of the gonad in marsupials
0: interesting Interesting.
1: Suggesting that you know maybe mammals are not completely resistant to estrogen, but it's difficult.
0: Yeah, it's certainly much harder than, than some of the, the fish and amphibians. uh yes, I mean
1: for most most egg-laying species, particularly aquatic species, if you add estrogen to the water or estrogen mimics, for example, environmental toxicants. There have been many studies, for example, in lakes in Florida, where um in the lakes near Disney World. There's a very high incidence of genital abnormalities and, um, and defects in um, alligators and other species that develop in waters where a lot of plastic and, mm. uh, yeah. And, but whereas if you go to some of the lakes deep in the Everglades, you don't see that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so one, one question here that it, it I think is interesting and that maybe we take for granted is, you know, we, you've you've spoken about these bipotential organs, and we talk about sexual dimorphism. Um, but a very simple question that that I've heard um, children ask before actually is, well, why why is it why does sexual reproduction involve two sexes? Why isn't three or four or five? And and where does this sort of bipotentiality come from?
1: Uh, I don't have an answer for that, but I think that our sexual phenotypes are a lot more diverse. Uh, than we've sort of uh, appreciated in the past. We tended to think of sex as two bell-shaped curves out on the end of a spectrum. So one pile of females over here and one pile of males over here. But actually, I think there's uh, much more overlap between males and females. The more we learn about sex determination, the more we find that there are many factors that influence the outcome, uh, many genes. and uh, that are uh, segregating in the population. And so there's a, um, all females are not, uh, uh, there's a lot of variation among females and a lot of variation among males. And there's probably a tremendous amount of overlap between these two bell-shaped curves in the middle, where we have um, sexes that we are beginning to appreciate as just different, not, not we, it, it's reflected in the terminology. So we used to refer to, um, uh, DSDs just, we now speak of them as differences in sexual development, but we used to call them defects in sexual development. And I think that this kind of terminology is much more inclusive of, of what we actually see. Um, that, that sex is, is, is not such a bipolar principle.
0: I see. And how many... Um... So when we think about sex cells, you've got sperm and egg. Is there ever, are there ever intermediate sex cell phenotypes? Are there ever separate ones or is it just those two?
1: There's just those two. Um, and in fact, you know, in mammals, in most species, we we have developed an, an elaborate uh, internal organ system for managing um. The, the ductal tracts from the gonads to get the gonads out to the outside world, right? I mean, to get the germ cells out to the outside world. The gametes are are protected inside the gonad as they grow into eggs or sperm. And then we develop elaborate sex ducts that take them from the testis or the ovary outward in, in the world. So, you know, the ovary ovulates, oocytes. So they're picked up by uh, the oviduct and carried to the uh, through the oviduct where they're fertilized and then in, into the uterus where they implant and grow. Um, and in males, there are elaborate ducts around the testis in which the, the sperm that's released from the testis travels and be, is modified as it goes through all the male ductal system until it can swim fast and, and has a highly modal tail and so forth. So there are many, um, there's a lot of development that goes on in the sperm as it travels through the male ductal system until it's ready for ejaculation and is competitive to fertilize an oocyte. I see. So, you know, these systems are highly evolved for mammals and for every other species, although many of them work differently.
0: And um, so in terms of like how some of this stuff happens, focusing on humans and mammals. So, so humans have the XY system XY is associated with male development. XX is associated with female development. And that has something to do with um, which of the two uh, gonads develops out of this bipotential bi- primordial organ that you spoke about. So yeah. can you start to describe in simple terms how that actually happens? Like what does it have to do with the Y chromosome? And where do, where do some of these interesting genes start to come in?
1: Okay. So SRY, it turns out, is a transcription factor now. Transcription factors are proteins that bind somewhere on a chromosome and activate another gene. Um, So it triggers, when SRY is expressed, it binds uh, um, the region around another gene called SOX9. And that gene um, has a lot of targets that uh, are involved in causing the cell it is active in to differentiate as a Sertoli cell. Sertoli cells are the key cell in the testis. They line the inside of seminiferous cords, uh, which are characteristic of the testis. And so expression of SOX9 and the genes, it it's also a transcription factor that activates a lot of other genes. And so there's a, a cascade of gene expression from SRY coming on to SOX9 coming on and then SOX9 activating five or six other genes, maybe more, we don't know yet. But that causes those cells to commit to a Sertoli fate. If SRY does not come on, those same cells will commit to a granulosa cell fate. That's the cell in the ovary that forms ovarian follicles that surround oocytes. I see. So the cells at the bipotential stage seem to be primed to develop as cells in the ovary. So, they seem to be on, an, on a track to become granulosa cells in the ovary. But if the SRY gene turns on in those cells, it will divert their development towards Sertoli
0: cell. I see. Okay. So, so you've got this bipotential organ it's inherently able to go one way or the other, turn into either ovary or testes. Yes. If this one gene is around, which is on the Y chromosome, which, which, which is associated with being male in mammals this protein this transcription factor is present that's sort of like a master switch that turns on a bunch of other genes or turns off a bunch of other genes and that pushes you towards becoming testes rather than ovaries and if you don't have that there's just sort of some kind of bias to become ovaries by default
1: yeah might be involved we're not sure of that that yet but that's kind of what it looks like and at the moment um and um It it turns out that the gonad is itself bipotential, but it turns out that the cells within the gonad, each cell type is also bipotential. So that's what makes the whole organ bipotential. But there are at least three general cell types in that early organ. One of them can become either a Sertoli cell or a granulosa cell in the ovary. Another one of them is called the steroidogenic progenitor. It's the cell that can give rise to cells that make testosterone or cells that make estrogen. Um, And then there are the germ cells that I've already told you about that, that can become either sperm or oocytes. And it turns out that the gonocyte, the early germ cells, take on the fate of the organ they find themselves in. So that means that if they, regardless of their sex chromosome constitution if they migrate into a structure that's forming an ovary, they'll become oocytes. Whereas if they migrate into a structure forming a testis, they'll start developing along the sperm pathway.
0: I see. So, so is the reason that um, so when we identify a mammal as male versus a bird that's male, you know, in, in the one in the mammalian case, the the male would be heterogametic, so X Y. In the bird case, it would be ZZ. 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 But what makes them both male would be the identity of the gonad that develops. Yes. I see. I see. The
1: identity of the gonad that develops. Yes.
0: And then the gonad starts to develop and the gonads are producing themselves sex hormones. So is that where sex hormones really start to come in and play a role here?
1: Yes. And then the sex sex hormones will influence (laughs) the development of uh, the genitalia, um, the sex ducts. So Initially, mammals are born with two completely not born, sorry, they formed with two completely different sex duct systems. Um, and they're present in animals that are XX and XY. The same, the same two ducts are present in both. But if your if your gonad begins to develop as a testis, then the testis will produce factors that cause the, the duct that's going to become the male ductal system to form properly but it will cause the other ductal system, it would be the female ductal system to degenerate completely. And the reverse is true in animals that are XX and form an ovary. Uh, In that case, the male ductal system is not supported and so it degenerates. And the ductal system that can become the female ducts, that is the oviduct and the uterus, um, will will grow because of um, information from the ovary.
0: And when we start to um, talk about sex hormones, I think everyone has heard of sex hormones. Everyone has heard of testosterone and estrogen. I don't think a lot of people know exactly what they are. So what are sex hormones and what do they actually do at the cellular level? How do they actually like exert their effects?
1: Um, Well, they're usually small molecules that bind to a receptor on the surface of a cell. So many cells have receptors that sit on their surface and stick out into the environment. And when um, secreted factors come along, they can bind, they can recognize their right receptor and get transported into the cell. And then once they're in the cell, they often, in combination with their receptor, also act as a transcription factor that can go into the nucleus and bind the DNA somewhere and activate more genes.
0: Mm. Okay. So so some of these sex hormones, at least, they actually bind to receptor and then that uh, that sh- whole structure can actually go into the nucleus and determine whether or not different genes come on or off. That's right. Interesting. So what? Um, I mean, are there any major? Um, why is it so important that? Um, how is it that like the ratios of these sex hormones are important for determining the, the subsequent development of different aspects of sexual phenotype? Is it because? The, the balance of say testosterone and estrogen makes different genes come on and off?
1: Yes, that's right. So um, if um, many, for example, the, your, the cells that form your genitalia initially before it's become male or female, um, they are responsive to hormones in, uh, in most species and they have receptors on their surface so they can detect estrogen or uh, androgens. Uh, And they will differentiate in a different way. The cells will express different genes and turn into something different, depending or not on whether or not they sense those hormones. Interesting. And the balance between them, I'm not sure that's understood so well at the level of the whole organism. Um, There must be some sort of competition going on uh, between receptors that detect one hormone or the other or perhaps even the binding sites on the chromosomes it's I don't think it's completely clear how competition between the two hormones works
0: Mm -hmm. and in the beginning when we were talking about some of the history of some of the discoveries here you you mentioned that you had these interesting people from Algeria that had some kind of interesting phenotype that had to do with the sex chromosomes can you can you actually explain that a little bit more and what was actually going on there
1: um, so we, we had um, access to a, a, a group of patients from, uh, for some reason, there's a high incidence of sex reversal among these patients. Um, and we received samples, just DNA samples from the patients. But the patients had been identified as uh, XX. So they had the chromosomal phenotype of a female, but they had developed with at least some testis tissue. And as I said earlier, that, that can occur. We had about 200 samples to start with, um, was sent to us. The trouble is that that sort of development, so if you come into a clinic and you have some aspect of male development, for example, your genitalia is not clearly um, associated with male, classic male or female genitalia, is what's usually seen first, or Uh, females that don't go through menses, so they don't start menstruating. And so the mothers take the children to the doctor and they find out, well, actually um, there's some sexual variation here. Um, Anyway, so these females had, uh, or what would have been female, XX individuals had differentiated with some testis like um, parts of their gonads. And so um, they came to our attention. And we initially, uh, we needed to sort through the whole stack of 200 samples to figure out which ones might be informative for our purpose, which was to find the SRY gene. So we we hypothesized that some of these individuals were sex-reversed to male because they had a piece of the Y chromosome that carried the gene, the sex-determining gene. And we wanted to find among the 200 samples, the ones that we might look at more closely and find out what region of the Y they add.
0: I see. So somehow these individuals had some piece of the Y chromosome, even though they were otherwise, in chromosomal terms, had the female configuration. Yes, right. And how, how common is this type of thing where you have a sex chromosomal abnormality? Is it like one in 100, one in 1,000, one in a million? I'm terrible at
1: these kind of numbers, but it's not that common. I think this is maybe one in a 1,000 or so for this sort of sex chromosome abnormality.
0: And um, I mean, presumably this can happen in multiple different ways. Cause I know that you can be like XXY or, or have different different things. And does this, does this tend to manifest in, um, is this, this, this tends to manifest in, 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 in sexual phenotypes that are just not clearly uh, associated with a classic male or female phenotypes.
1: They can manifest in that way. Um, and, and many other um, differences in sex development can arise as a result. You know, for example, there are, there's a problem called a, a congenital adrenal hyperplasia, where the adrenal gland produces just really high levels of androgens uh-huh. during gestation. And that can cause an XX embryo to be masculinized so that when she's born, based on genitalia, it would be hard to assign her um, as to a classic male or female genital formation. Um, So that's one of many other disorders that is, that's not a chromosomal disorder, that's genetic, one gene that causes that. But um, there are many other cases where the sexual phenotype can be altered. Many of them are hormonal. So for example, the classic one is Individuals that lack an androgen receptor. You know, I told you that there's a testosterone receptor. It's really called the androgen receptor. And if you have a mutation in the androgen receptor, even if you're XY and you develop a normal testis, the cells that normally um, differentiate based on the hormone environment can't sense the hormone. They can't, Mm -hmm. they don't recognize the testosterone. If without an androgen receptor on the surface of those genitalia cells, they develop female because they don't have any influence from the testis is making testosterone, but they can't sense it.
0: I see. So the detectors for the home hormone are absent. So even though the, the gonad has gone one route, the male route, the the other cells that would normally respond to that testosterone uh, level in, in, in the uh, developing organism just can't respond. No,
1: they can't respond. So they go, they develop as female genitalia. And, uh, but the test, but the gonad has become a testis. And in this kind of a mismatch, um, it's, um, you know, I think that the, the, the individual is usually infertile because the genitalia and the sex ducts don't match the sex of the gonad. So and as I said earlier, these systems are highly evolved to work together uh, to I get gametes from the gonad out to the outside world. And so
0: that makes sense. So if, if the gonad develops on one route, um, but a lot of the secondary features that, that develop downstream of the hormonal vi- environment that's set up by the gonad, if, if there's that mismatch there, it, it often result results in infertility. That's right. I see. And then, um, One area that's fascinating to me, and I don't know if this is your expertise, but I have a neuroscience background too, is these things can also affect the brain, right? I know that sex hormones are involved in, uh, you know, going inside of neurons and affecting how the neurons develop. Can you start to talk about how, because, you know, it's easy to think about two phases of development, I guess. There's the early phase where you're an embryo and then you're born. And then, or two or three, and then there's, you know, in humans, we have a childhood where after we're born, but before we become sexually mature. And then of course, puberty happens and then sexual maturity results. So how do these sort of different, um, time, time segments of development start to hook into each other? What, for example, determines, um, like when puberty starts or how that starts?
1: Uh, I don't think that's known very clearly. Mm. Um, but, I think there are a lot of people working on it are very interested. The whole issue of brain sex uh, to, to sort of put it in its broad broadest concept. That means maybe uh, what your sexual identity is, what you think your sexual identity is. There's also a part of brain sex that has to do with what partner preference you have. Mm-hmm. Those things are really not what I work on. They're sort of outside my expertise. I really just basically work on the initial Sex determination step within the gonad, but um, but I'm also fascinated by these questions, and I think we don't actually know when brain sexual identity is um, is acquired. Whether part of it is happens before birth or whether it's it's uh, it mostly happens after birth, I think we don't really know. There are some differences in the brains between males and females, but it's been very hard to decide uh, which of these is. Influenced somehow by, for example, chromosomal sex versus hormones. Um, you know, so the hormones definitely have an influence on the development of some of the cells in the brain, and some of the, the preoptic cortex is, um, no, yeah, pre preoptic area is the is the region that I think has most been most strongly associated with um, differences in the cellular composition and so forth that that are associated with XX or XY individuals. But um, I don't think any of the evidence for brain development is, is, is really solid at the moment. So I think it's still, people are still trying to figure, figure this out. One interesting line of research that is currently um, being followed is, is what differences occur between XX and XY cells that might inherently tell them something about their identity beyond what the gonad is telling the whole organism. Mm. This has been highlighted by work in the chicken um, uh, that if you have a few more minutes I'll tell you about.
0: Oh yeah absolutely.
1: Chickens can develop into what are called gonandromorphs which are individuals that are male on one side and female on the other many birds can do this and other arthropods like lobsters do this and uh fruit flies do this where one side of the animal is just it's bilateral one side is and in birds you'll see birds that have male plumage on one side and female plumage on the other um and this is a really unusual um fate and Based on the ideas that I've been telling you, it's just that once the gonads decide what they are and they make hormones that bathe the whole body in estrogen or testosterone, you would expect this kind of thing to be impossible. (laughs) You know, you would think that the whole body would get behind one plan or the other, but it turns out that in gynandromorphs, this doesn't happen. And there seems to be a a, a divide down the middle. Hmm. Recent work in these animals suggests that the side that they likely arise through um, meiotic defects that give rise to where um, an egg is fertilized by two sperm and you get uh, maybe fertilization after a division so that you have some animals that have, um, that carry the Z chromosome and some animals that have two X's. I see. Some cells that have the uh, ZW and the others that are two ZZ. So it's been shown in birds that When this occurs, typically one side of the animal will have a predominance of one cell type and the other side of the animal will have a predominance of the other cell type. And it has been hypothesized that, for example, ZW cells uh, can sense uh, their environment, their hormone environment differently from ZZ cells. Interesting. Um, And that might mean an intrinsic sensor system um, a sensing system in, in these cells. And people have been looking for this in mammals, but it's really been hard to understand. You know, there are experiments showing that XX or XY embryonic stem cells have different properties, and particularly in terms of their epigenetic regulation. Mm. So it could be that our, our XX and XY cells have intrinsic um, differences that we don't understand yet.
0: Interesting. So, so there could be intrinsic differences, meaning that the cells are different, irrespective of like the hormonal environment they're bathed in. But we really worked out what those details are. We
1: yeah. And in mammals, even if you are, um, an, even if you are an individual that is a mosaic of XX and XY cells, you are you will not have bilateral differentiation. It doesn't happen in mammals. Um, or very, very, so in that case, um, the whole body gets behind one plan uh, to either have female characteristics or male characteristics, and so we don't quite understand how this is working yet. We know that, for example, you can make uh, an XX, you can turn an XX animal into a male by expressing the SRY gene in the early embryo.
0: I see, just that one gene.
1: Just that one gene, right? All you need to do is introduce that one gene into an XX embryo when it first forms. And it will get expressed in the gonad. It will turn the gonad into a testis and the testis will turn the animal into a male.
0: Interesting. And that's been done in rodents?
1: That's been done in mice, right? It's now been done, I think, in other species. Uh, I'm trying to think what, but I think also in uh, sheep or something like that.
0: I see. Yeah. So that goes goes back to what you were explaining before. You have this bipotential organ, and it's sort of inherently it can go either way, but it's kind of got this bias to become female. But if you have that SRY gene, it's sort of this master switch that makes you go in the other direction. That's
1: right. And in that case, you realize the whole body is XX. All the cells in the body are XX, and yet they follow a male differentiation program. So if the X and Y chromosomes in mammals are are influential in how cells sense their fate, it can be overridden by hormones. I see. But this is a point that is worth, I think, uh, spending a few more minutes on. I, um, I think sex determination is very complex and uh, reinforcing system with many feedback loops, auto-regulatory loops and When um, a gonad embarks on the testis or the ovary pathway, many of the genes that are activated, uh, their role is to suppress the other pathway. Hmm. So once a a gonad decides to become a testis, that is the cells decide to become Sertoli cells, those cells will shut down the granulosa cell pathway. And it's true at the individual cell gene network level it's also true at the whole uh all the cells in that organ will do the same thing so there's um there are a lot of feedback loops and self-reinforcing loops that tend to what we call we refer to it as canalization but that means that you train the organ into one little canal Um, but basically you're trying to get the organ to develop as either a testis or an ovary i see Uh, and there can be intermediates, but the most reproductively advantageous is that you form either one thing or the other.
0: I see. So so you've got this bipotential state, and you get these gene regulatory programs and cellular mechanisms that turn on such that you know the, the, the term here is canalization. You become canalized towards one pathway or the other. And it sounds like what you're saying is because in a sexually reproducing species you know, it doesn't really do much from a, from a reproductive standpoint to have like half of one system and half of the other, you, you kind of want to get, go down one pathway or the other one.
1: Yeah. Because if you form a testis, but you don't have an epididymis and a vast deferens to direct the sperm out uh, for fertilization, it's not going to do you any good, you mm-hmm. know? So I think then that individual won't propagate.
0: Interesting. So- yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I know, I know there's a lot of interesting examples in like fish and other animals where in the adults, if I'm not mistaken, at least under the right environmental conditions, they can actually do a sex reversal. Is that true? And, and what, like, how does that actually work in those organisms?
1: Isn't that amazing? So yes, this is true. And, and uh, many fish do this, many reef fish. Um, it's very common. Um, And they can either develop first as males, which is called uh, protandrous, or they can develop first as females, which is called uh, protogynous. And in that case, they exist as males, for example, for some part of their life, and then they switch to females. They can switch uh, as a normal sort of process of their development. A common laboratory animal um, is zebrafish, and zebrafish develops all zebrafish first produce oocytes and then some of them switch to producing sperm. So they're protogynous, they start as females. But many other fish uh, start as male and then they either switch or they don't switch depending on the cues from their environment. And this can be triggered by lots of things, but very often fish maintain their sex based on their, um, the hierarchy in their school Typically, there's a very dominant male who subdues the other fish in the school. The females are, are fertile, producing oocytes and laying, but the males, the other male fish in the school are not developed, so they remain teenagers. <laughs> and if the male disappears um, from, from their view, uh, then one of them will, one of the, either the males or the females will differentiate into a dominant male. And that usually depends on the size and the the dynamics in the school. So if it's a female, it will be a very large female who has a dominant role in in the school. So she can become the male. Um, Or one of the immature males can develop into a a sperm producing male and dominate the school.
0: And you said that switch can happen when the dominant male is hidden from view. Now, my question there is, is it really the view? My, my naive guess would have been that there's some kind of hormone yeah. secreted, but is it actually the visual system here that's? Well, you're right. This?
1: Everybody thought it was probably hormones. He was, uh, you know, some pheromone that he was secreting into the water. the The, the key experiment was putting fish in cages, uh, luring them into tanks where there's a cage in front with the dominant male, and there's a cage in the back that contains all the other fish in the school, and so then they. Uh, and everybody was performing like they should be but then they lowered a, a curtain between the dominant male and the the cage of fish in the back and when those fish couldn't see the dominant male one of them sex reversed they're all in the same water still in the same water but they can't see the male so this is the experiment that led us to the conclusion that the dominant male is dominant because he is doing he's performing in some way that suppresses the development of the other fish they, they see him and they know he's dominant
0: Interesting. they
1: challenge him by the way
0: uh-huh.
1: in many species sort of for example African cichlids those males are really really busy because they guard the nest um, um, and they're being challenged all the time by other males so males have a cyclic hormone, um, surge every day. And when the other males in the group have hormone surges, they'll challenge the dominant male. And so he has to keep running out to tell them, no, no, I'm still the dominant male and, um, and sort of beat them back. And then one day he loses control. Um, I guess he gets worn out. He's got to guard the nest too. He's busy guy.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Um, So what, what does it mean? Like, what does it mean at, at a high level for, I mean, we've got sexual reproduction has evolved so many different times in across the animal kingdom. And yet you've got all of these different ways of, of determining sex, all of these different mechanisms that have evolved. What does it mean that on the one hand, uh, sexual reproduction is, is so common and has evolved so many times, but, and yet it's, it's sort of different in all these different lineages.
1: I, I think it's the, uh, I think it's the nature of the The way the system is a balance between two competing networks that can be uh, driven by minor differences in one of the, if you think of it as factors piled on a fulcrum, on a scale, Mm -hmm. you have a pile of male factors over here and a pile of female factors over here. And when something evolves, some mutation that causes a very dominant gene to emerge, it can weight one side, so it goes toward male, for example and it represses the female pathway. But then you could have another gene evolve that's stronger than this one that pushes toward the female side and it outcompetes. So now the female pathway is triggered. Um, I think it's easy in a system like that where there are a lot of reinforcing loops and a whole network of genes that's driving either side and new new genes emerge all the time in evolution and they can uh, cause a shift in the way this balance behaves. But since it's self-reinforcing, and there's so many genes in the network, and they are also repressing the alternative pathway, I think it it's just um, a fertile ground for the emergence of new genes that can influence the system.
0: I see. Yeah, and if I sort of play with that analogy, you know, I can imagine that, you know, if the lineage is committed to sexual reproduction, meaning asexual reproduction is not possible, if you know, you have to keep the fulcrum balanced because if it goes one way. or then yeah. you've got all males or all females and, and the lineage is going to die. So it sort of uh, makes sense in evolutionary terms. I think that uh, to keep it balanced, you sort of need many different uh, nodes that can be tweaked and played with in order to prevent it from getting too lopsided.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. But I think it also really is permissive for the emergence of, of new genes and mm-hmm. fish. You see this all the time. Many fish, have very different systems uh, with different genes at the top of the cascade. But something else that's interesting that we haven't uh, haven't understood yet really is even downstream in the network. So I should tell you that the the structure of an ovary and the structure of uh, of a testis are pretty similar across species. Like if you do a section of a testis in a pig and compare it to a human, you wouldn't really see that much difference. Hmm. Um, even in a turtle, a testis looks like a testis. Um, and yet the way of getting it is so different. And you would think that the formation of organs would be um, you know, st- stereotypic. It would be very highly conserved. The gene cascade that gives you those structures should be similar. It turns out that there are many of the same genes involved, but they're expressed in a different order. Hmm. So it's as though somebody shuffled the genes in yeah. the network, but they're still working. So, I think this also suggests this is very complex uh, network system with lots of nodes and lots of um, so that you know there may be one prominent node in one species, but another node may be prominent in another species. And I don't I don't really understand the reason for this.
0: Interesting. Um, so you were mentioning how like you've got all these species of fish and and other critters that can have a strongly um that are the sex determination pathways are strongly sensitive to environmental components it could be the the social structures that the fish are in it could be ph of the water or temperature um with certain reptiles and things and the reason that's not the case in mammals made a lot of sense the um I mean, we have internal fertilization, the environment is made on purpose in in placental mammals to be constant. So you just, you have a constant environment. It's sort of engineered in from the beginning. Um, One thing that's interesting about humans and and primates, I suppose, and maybe a couple other creatures is we have um, not only long periods of extended development that happen after birth, but also um, in the case of humans, right? Like we can manipulate our environments in ways that other organisms it doesn't even occur to them. They just can't do it. Um, so like, for example, we can use things like exogenous steroid hormones. We can use things like puberty blockers. Do we know anything about how those things affect, uh, development that happens in humans after, uh, birth?
1: Um, it, well, it depends on when they're given. Um, you know, I think, um, The the original development of your sex ducts and your genitalia occurs in utero, um, and then it it is amplified a bit in puberty. So depending on exactly when you get these treatments, it will have um, a a greater or lesser effect. Um, I don't think we really understand quite how they fit into the whole cascade very well. As I said, I'm not sure we understand puberty, except that we know some of the things that trigger it, but I don't think we really understand how that works very mm-hmm. much yet. Um, so I think we we are using these blockers as, um, you know, but this is very common in medicine that we use something that works long before we really know why it works um, or how it works. But I think we have a, a greater appreciation for uh, the range of sexual phenotype than we used to. And a greater, um, I don't know, tolerance for lack of a better word, of this kind of variability. Um, you know, we used to judge. We used to judge very harshly individuals that were not clearly in the male or female pile. And now I think we appreciate their differences, and uh, usually they are associated with, um, often with very high creativity and all kinds of other features that are really good things. So I think. Um, you know, And increasingly, there will be um, ways to achieve reproduction or achieve fertility, even when you don't have the classic development of a testis or an ovary. I mean, lots of people are working on the formation of synthetic gametes, so um, maturing eggs and sperm in vitro, or even building a testis or an ovary as an organoid um, that can then be uh, in culture, which might even someday be able to um, house and mature the germ cells into eggs or sperm. That is a goal of uh, a field called synthetic embryology, where a lot of people are trying to figure out how we can do that in vitro. Uh, This is of course um, associated with a lot of ethical considerations um, that I'm not really qualified to get into at the moment, but. you know, I don't want you to think that scientists are blind to the ethical concerns if we begin to make eggs and sperm in vitro.
0: Mm-hmm. But do you, you think that's, it's, it's scientifically possible that like within, within a human lifetime, we could have the knowledge and the technology to essentially create an embryo, a fully viable embryo that grows and develops into a baby in a completely engineered external envi- environment that's external to, a, to an actual human body?
1: Well, I don't know about a whole baby, but I think an organ is achievable. Um, I mean, we already have methods that are have, have taken us a long way and a lot of people are working on a generation of a gonad because it seems that germ cells need the gonad environment and we don't understand, we don't understand all the reasons why. So in the absence of the knowledge of what to add to them to make them feel comfortable or at home in, in a dish, um, the best approach seems to be to produce um, the cells that give rise to a testis or an ovary and and then give the germ cells to those cells and say, okay, you take care of them, you obviously know how to do it. uh, So the idea is to build the cells of the gonad and then see if we can um, introduce germ cells. We can already generate germ cells or or germ-like cells from um, induced pluripotent cells or from embryonic stem cells through a series of molecular steps so we know how to generate the germ cells. Interesting. Um, and then it's the question of maturing them and so far that I would say that has been I'm, I'm not yet convinced that we've got we're there but I think we probably will be there in another 10, 10 or 15 years.
0: I see and so you said we don't really know much about the mechanics of, of how puberty is happening, but we do, we know, we do know something about like what triggers it. Is it like a hormonal levels thing or what, yes. what do we actually know there?
1: Well, it's, it's triggered by estrogen in, um, in females, rises in estrogen. But I, what I mean to say is that I'm not sure anybody really understands why it occurs when it occurs. Mm. Um, uh, at least I don't, <laughs> Somebody I might, but I don't, I mean,
0: I see. So, but it has something to do with, with sex hormone levels reaching a certain level.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: I see. I see. And so when um, like when, when people use something like a puberty blocker, what do those drugs actually do? Is it preventing, is it like a receptor antagonist for the sex hormones or what's the actual mechanism of action there?
1: I don't know what people are using. I know people are using hormones, hormone treatments, um, but I don't actually know what the, what the puberty blocker they're using is.
0: And probably
1: um, gonadotrophin from, uh, you know, because the pituitary, the hypothalamus is probably what's controlling all of this. And so I think it blocks um, messages from the hypothalamus.
0: I see. I see. And you mentioned that, um, you know, this might be a burgeoning area of study, but there's potentially some, some interesting epigenetics going on. Um, in terms of epigenetic regulation of cells, with uh, based on which sex chromosomes they have, and I've been talking about epigenetics broadly speaking with with a, a variety of speakers recently in different different contexts, uh, metabolism, aging, and things like that. But what's you know what's going on right now in terms of epigenetic regulation of sex determination in mammals? Are there any exciting uh, questions being asked?
1: Yeah, lots. <laughs> So we found a few years back that um, turtle sex determination, which depends on temperature, um, is controlled by an epigenetic enzyme that regulates whether or not the male pathway is activated. So I don't know whether our listeners are familiar with epigenetic regulation, but it basically means that the chromosomal DNA is modified in some way. So that when transcription factors come, um, they can either bind the site that activates a gene or that site is blocked by uh, modifications to the DNA. What we found in the turtle is that a gene that uh, controls the removal of those modifications to free up a site for a transcription factor to bind, um, that gene is regulated by temperature in the turtle. it's, it's a very interesting pathway where temperature actually influences uh, channels in the cell that open and close. They're called trip channels and they open and close in response to the temperature the cell is in. And when they open, they can let calcium into the cell. And when calcium comes in, it starts a network that activates this gene. And the gene then goes and modifies the chromosomes. And that's what allows the male pathway to turn on in turtles. In mammals, The gene also has a role. We Mm. haven't actually published this yet, but we got partial sex reversal when we reverse, when we um, disrupt the gene in mammals. So we're following this up to figure out whether it has co activators or why it's partial.
0: Interesting. Uh, Yeah. I mean, there's just so much diversity here that's amazing. Um, Yeah. And like with, you know, with the reptiles and the fish and stuff, it makes sense. I mean, it just makes perfect sense that you have all these environmental inputs just because, right, their eggs are external, they're touching the environment in a way, the external environment in a way that that mammalian yeah. embryos don't. Um, so pH sensitivity, temperature sensitivity. You mentioned also, I mean, this is another sort of, I guess, environmental concern. Like you mentioned, in, I think you said in Florida, where there's a lot of human activity and human stuff well, that gets into the water, that can actually affect things like alligator development.
1: It can, mm-hmm. Um, is, and it's worrying. Yeah. Along with climate change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's another big one too. Yeah. Is that actually, has that been documented or like in places where the temperature is clearly rising, yes. for example, like that, you know, if all the reptiles are now boys or something.
1: They're all girls. All um, girls. Yeah. Among sea turtles, I think they haven't found a male in a nest in Florida in the last two or three years. Oh, wow. So the temperature is just too warm for males. They develop at a lower temperature in in the in the turtles and the temperature has just been too warm. It's true in Australia as well, but um, what's been seen in Australia, studied in Australia, which is interesting is that males from the very Southern tip of Australia have now started swimming up to the breeding grounds for the females in the North hmm. where the temperature is very warm as there aren't any, there's no competition up there, you know? <laughs> So um, the males are swimming up from um, the South to, to fertilize the females in the Northern part. Um, and maybe they'll bring a different gene load that will- interesting. Um, maybe in this sort of uh, recombination, amazing recombination system we have in, in, in um, bisexual reproduction, we will generate animals that can adapt to the temperature. That is to say a new gene will evolve in the network uh, that can cause males to develop even at high temperatures
0: mm-hmm. interesting yeah that's that's fascinating yeah so the sea the male sea turtles in some parts of the world have discovered they've yeah. discovered the ultimate vacation spot
1: that's right they
0: have <laughs> <laughs> um, so in in mammals in placental mammals especially we've got the sort of amazing buffering system the uterus you've got the placenta that's that re- regulates what can kind of go in and out of the in utero environment are you um do you have any concerns at all about like the modern human environment based on our diet and based on pollutants affecting human development and sexual development or do you think that the placenta protects us mostly
1: uh we haven't um studied it much in terms of sex determination, um, a a little bit, Um, people in the fields of toxicology are looking at this, but there certainly is a lot known, for example, um, about the effect on germ cell biology. So, um, men who drink a lot of alcohol, it affects the epigenetic regulation in their germ cells. Mm. And um, so a lot of this work is going on right now. It's called um, Determinants of, I don't remember the name of it, but anyway, it's, it's just looking at how environmental impact from smokers or from people um, uh, who have a lot of alcohol or, or obese, um, how that's affecting the development of their, often it, the, the most pronounced effects are in the germ cells. So... For some reason, the germ cells of their embryos are being affected. So that means not the generation that is currently developing in the uterus, but their offspring will be affected.
0: I see. So, so a lot of the de- sounds like a lot of the details are to be worked out, but it seems like it's, we're getting fairly clear signals that there's some kind of epigenetic yeah. mechanism at work with all these kinds of things.
1: That's right, um, and it's uh, it's clear that. Uh, the environment does influence uh, the development of m- mammals in utero. It's just a little more subtle and difficult to get at than it is in a pond system, you know, with aquatic species.
0: I see. I see. And it is. are there any general, um, right? Because plac- I don't really know much about placental biology at all. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff you don't want to get through there, but some stuff has to get through. So yeah, what yeah. are the kinds of things that generally get through the placenta?
1: Um, nutrients it's an exchange system from waste from the embryo gets out that way and nutrients come in water um immunity from the mother all kinds of things do get through the placenta Mm -hmm. Um, but it 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 i think it it does filter the hormone environment considerably so i think some hormones get into the embryo if you over overload the mother but i think very it's hard to do that
0: i see but, but I
1: I, it has it acts as a break i think
0: yeah so so it's a, it's a filter but it's probably not a perfect filter like there's probably yes. stuff that we're eating or drugs that we take prescription drugs yes. like there's probably some stuff that that gets through yes
1: and you know pregnant females can't take a lot of different drugs that do seem mm-hmm. to go through the placenta um, and it's pretty clear that um uh, metabolic influences also happen through mm-hmm. the pl- So uh, obese females, um, there are effects on on offspring, also effects on setting the metabolism of the offspring Mm. um, based on the mother's metabolism.
0: I see, so aspects of metabolism can get set, which are not based on genetics, but they're based on the in utero environment. And and that would mean that, you know, from the moment of birth, you know the child's metabolism has been sort of biased in one way or the other, based on the mother's previous diet. That's right. Wow.
1: Yeah. I mean, this has been this was found kind of a long time ago, with um, when studies were done of women who were starved uh, during pregnancy during the mm-hmm. war, and it was found that uh, their offspring. Uh, had metabolism set points, I believe, that allowed them to exist on very small amounts of food. Wow! So I think that uh, now, you know, obese women have offspring that um, whose metabolism um, is is set by the, their previous experience in the in the womb. So I think it really is going to give us a lot of food for thought uh, about. Um, what can happen to our embryos
0: yeah um, and often
1: it skips a generation and moves to them because if if the germ cells are so the germ cells i think i told you earlier germ cells migrate to the gonad while the gonad is still forming mm-hmm. and that's during fetal life so your baby that's developing if you're pregnant your baby is going to be forming their gonads and their germ cells are going to be there all through their fetal development and so those germ cells, which are going to form your grandchildren, <laughs> uh, will be affected by whatever you're doing during your pregnancy.
0: Mm. Okay, so there is really something to uh, things skipping a generation, at least in some cases.
1: Sometimes, yeah.
0: Interesting. One of the things I thought was interesting that you mentioned at the very beginning, and this I'm always interested when people switch like switch from science to non-science or the other way or kind of switch careers and do two different things you mentioned something interesting at the beginning you said you were an art history major and you wanted to be a novelist and then you became
1: a scientist
0: what can you talk about that a little bit more what actually triggered that what actually yeah what actually prompted you to make that transition
1: oh I don't um I I think that You know, for some reason, I guess when I graduated from college, I thought it was going to be easy to just sit down and write a novel every day. <laughs> but it turns out that's really, really hard to do. And especially if you have a couple of toddlers crawling around. Mm. Um, all the time. And I think that um, I sort of, you know, I, I had children when I was pretty young and then um, I just got involved in, in their nursery schools. And then, you know, up until about first grade when I was so involved every day, I didn't have time to think about anything else. And I think then, by then, I was really ready for um, a different experience, and I had gotten over the idea that I was going to sit down and just write a novel any, any day now. And I thought, you know, it would be really interesting to pursue something like science. But even then, I, I didn't really think of it as a career. I thought of it as an avocation. I would do that just because I needed something really interesting to be doing with my time. I've often told a story about volunteering for a uh, um, uh, it was some sort of a, uh, an event where we were meant to bring things for the tea room and we sold them, you know, with tea to patrons and earn some money for the school. I can't remember what we were doing, but anyway, I had brought some brownies to donate and there was this very officious woman there who was trying to show me how to cut the brownies because I apparently wasn't cutting them into exactly even squares, and she thought the clients would complain, and so she was giving me very precise instructions about, you know, that I needed to cut them this way, and I was thinking, I'm not doing this anymore, <laughs> Do this? I can't do this with my life, you know, I just, I, if somebody's going to tell me how to do something, it needs to be something important, you know, teach me surgery or something, don't, you know, tell me how to cut the brownies. So I decided I was going to do something else, and I, um, and I just enrolled in a genetics class at Bryn Mawr, but had a fantastic teacher, and he kind of woke me up again and made me think it's oh, so much fun to be thinking, um, you know, to have to think about things. It's such a lot of fun, and you, you feel really alive, and I think after, you know, eight years or so with toddlers, uh, you, anyone would recognize that feeling is just really welcome. Uh, and I just got more and more involved. By the time I went back to school, my children were in uh, past first grade, so they were in school until three in the afternoon. So I had most of a day free. Mm. Um, and then I, things just went on from there. I kept really liking it. I would take the next class, and I think, oh, this is great. Maybe I'll take another one. Um, and then at some point, somebody said, "Look, why don't you go to graduate school?" And I thought, oh, you know, what do I want with graduate school? I mean, I'm. I did not imagine that I was headed toward a career. Um, in fact, it took me a really long time to decide that I was actually going to uh, go for a career in, in academic science.
0: Yeah, you, um, I mean, in many ways, you did things the opposite. Like when I was in grad school, um, a major dilemma I would hear about from female students was, You know, if they wanted to have kids, they would think about having them like later because they wanted to get through. They want to get through all the schooling and stuff first. But you actually did it in the opposite direction, and it kind of worked out. It seems like
1: it did work out, but it was an accident. (laughs) I mean, you know, I didn't uh, know I was going to go to school when I had the children, but it was a good thing, really, because by the time I got into graduate school, you know, one was in high school and the other one was, I don't know, I don't know, eleven. So it wasn't as though I had very small children.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and I was lucky. I was able to get help during the day to pick up people from school and stuff like that. It was definitely challenging to, you know, keep all the balls in the air because you know you've got you still have to take care of the children after school, like you you know, and often experiments don't work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was really lucky. I was able to work it all out, and um, and and I loved it. I just loved it. So it was really. It was a matter of just continuing with something that I found so exciting and rewarding. And, um, you know, fun, fun, really fun thing to do with my life. I really think you should go to graduate school if you really, if you really enjoy doing it. And not if you don't. Um, (laughs) You know, it's a a commitment and most of the time things don't work. You know, I don't know what you would say, but I guess maybe 70 or 75% of experiments don't work.
0: yeah at least
1: (laughs) and it can be really discouraging and frustrating
0: what um what are is there like are there one or two exciting projects that you're working on right now or one or two big questions that that you don't I like to ask people like is is there a big question right now that you're working on or that some of the people in your field are working on that we don't know the answer to but maybe in the next two or three or four years we will probably learn something
1: Um, well, I, uh, we have several really exciting projects from my point of view, but one of the things we're trying to understand is, is what controls the female pathway in the gonads. So we know that, as I said earlier, the gonad seems to have a bias toward female development, and then SRY comes along and turns it into a testis. Um, But we don't really know what's at the top of the female pathway. And I think we're really interested in seeing if we can figure that out it's been hard to get at, um, and so it's not it's not yet really clear what that is, but we're excited about that project. Um, in turtles, we're really, we've been looking at germ cell biology in the turtle, and we're really interested in how germ cells are affecting the sex determination pathway in turtles, and we've been working on that, and also lately. Um, we're also very interested in male germ cells in the mouse. Um, we have Uh, some evidence for post-transcriptional regulation. That means uh, RNA binding proteins that are involved in controlling germ cell fate, um, developing sperm. We're interested in that process too. So I think we have a lot of, we have a lot of things, different things happening in the lab that, that I'm very excited about.
0: Interesting. Well, this has been fascinating. Um, Dr. Capel um, you know this is an area I think we probably could have talked for even longer because I know there's a lot of different stuff especially with all the diversity between all the different animal types sure is. Um, but I think this is an area too that, that people want to learn more about and I definitely learned a lot so thank you for your time
1: thank you Nick it was really fun to talk with you I'm so glad you um, called me about this this is a